0: The Gospel, a Basic Truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the Gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. <laughs> Greetings, the Gospel of Basic Truth. We're looking at where in Scripture we can find the Gospel in addition to John 3.16. We do this to encourage you in your faith and to give you additional tools as you witness to family and friends. The message is always the same, but depending on who is speaking and who the audience is, a different approach can be taken. But again, the message is always the same. Today we are in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at the the Book of Daniel. Now I have mentioned Daniel chapter seven before when we looked at the Gospel of Mark. And this is a presentation of, uh, the, uh, of the Messiah, the, the Son of Man, the Son of God, in chapter seven. Now we're going to get to it, but again, let's take a, a, a longer look here at the book of Daniel. The theme of Daniel is God's sovereignty over the kings and kingdoms of the world. God is sovereign over the kings and kingdoms of the world. Daniel is a very uh, curious book. There are some very unique things about Daniel. It stands out. We find Daniel uh, after the first three, the the major prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. We have Daniel, and then we get the the 12 uh, minor prophets. Now, I know in a previous episode, I said nine, and I I missed the book. And yet, neither Jewish nor evangelical Christian scholars really consider Daniel to be a prophet. He does uh, interpret dreams, he has visions, and some of those include future things, but he's not really in the office of prophet. Just go back here a little bit in history. At the end of the time of Judges, when the people of Israel really wanted a king, and God gave them the first king, which was Saul, later David, and his son Solomon. At that same time, God raised up prophets, people that would speak for God. And the office or the role of the prophet was to speak for God to the kings and to the people. So we had the greater kingdom, and then that was uh, split up. The ten tribes in the north became the northern uh, nation of then, that was Israel. They were later conquered by the, the Assyrians and carried away in 722 B.C., and we often refer to them as the Lost Ten Tribes. And, of course, uh, uh, Judah and, um, and Reuben were in the south, and, and that became the, the nation of Judah, with capital city being, of course, Jerusalem. And so we have all of these prophets that are raised up. So, for instance, when David um, uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her su- husband murdered to cover it up, it was the prophet Nathan that went to David and to confront him on behalf of God for what he had done. So that is really the role. Sometimes they spoke to kings, but often they often just simply talked to the people And we see that in Isaiah. Uh, He talks to both kings and and to the the people of, uh, in that case, Judah. But that's not what Daniel does. He does not speak to any of the kings because they're all, you know, he's living in Babylon. And he's not really addressing the the Jewish people. Um, In fact, his main audience in Daniel is really Gentile nations. So a very, very unique book. daniel also is unique in that it's not all written in hebrew so all the rest of the books are written in hebrew in the old testament yet daniel uh only the first chapter and then first three verses of chapter two uh, along with uh, chapters 8 through 12 are in hebrew but the heart of daniel and that would be chapters uh, 2 through 7, are actually written in Aramaic. And why is that? Daniel, a direction of God, wants the Gentile nations to read this. Why? Because it's going to show that Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is sovereign over the kings and the kingdoms of the world. Let's look at a little background here and when we open up in chapter 1 of Daniel uh, is 605 B.C. or roughly thereafter. We see Daniel and he is uh, a teenager, perhaps an older teenager. This book now continues until we get into chapter 12, the last chapter of Daniel. And at that point Daniel is now probably 88, 87 years old. So, a good 70 years passes between chapter 1 and the last chapter of Daniel, and he spends that entire time in Babylon. So, Daniel is really talking about things that Isaiah and Moses have, have already brought up. Remember when we were in Isaiah, I said, Isaiah is prophesying to the people, telling them to repent because they're breaking the covenant. And it's not a new thing and remember we said he's taking his um he's taking all his cues from actually the book of deuteronomy once again moses had brought the people out of egypt and they went to mount sinai also called mount horeb and they promised to be god's covenant contract people And God gave them the law, which they were supposed to follow. And of course, they rebelled. And they rebelled so much that God just said, fine, you're not going into the promised land. And they wander around in a big circle for 40 years. But at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, when they first had left Egypt, and God came down to them, they all agreed that they would be bound by the contract, the covenant, So now 40 years passes, and they are about to go into the promised land. Moses is 120. God says, you're not going to take them in. You will die soon, and Joshua will take the people in. But that older generation had passed, and their children and grandchildren had grown up to take their place. And so Moses once again wants that new generation to commit to the covenant with God. And he sets all this out in, in the book of Deuteronomy. So he would have written that at the end of Exodus, probably in about 1406 B.C. He writes very clearly in Deuteronomy. You can read the book of Deuteronomy and, and you can get really every, all the high points of what happened during the Exodus. And then we get to the end and the new generation commits to the covenant. And this time, Moses, at God's direction, includes blessings and curses. If you follow the covenants, you will be blessed. If you violate the covenant, the contract, then we will have what, what I'm going to call as progressive discipline. But Moses calls them curses. They start out and, well, let, let's talk about the, the, the law of Moses so the law i believe has 628 different rules or laws in the law of moses we typically only pay attention to the first 10 the 10 commandments but we see in the law of moses things um, like honor the lord your god Uh, have no other gods before him don't worship idols don't take his name in vain Um, there should be justice and equity for all people we, we don't have one law for the rich and one law for the poor. And so these are the kinds of things in, in the law. Well, from the very beginning, everybody was breaking them. So this time around, Moses makes sure they understand there will be punishment, these curses, if you continue. And Isaiah talked about that. This stuff is coming. Well, now we get to Daniel, and it's here. This progressive discipline starts out, you know, well, maybe we'll have a drought. Maybe the animals won't be reproducing. Maybe you're not going to have children. But little by little, if you don't turn, then the worst thing that's going to happen to you is the nation will be destroyed. Uh, An enemy will come in, break down the walls, destroy the temple, and kill most of the people and take a remnant into captivity. Well, that's exactly the background of Daniel, and he is the first wave of those taken into captivity. As always, God is very gracious, slow to anger. He gives them so many chances. And yet we know from the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is one of the captives in the second round of deportation, and we'll talk about that. And God shows him in a vision how corrupt the priests were. How, how they were worshiping other gods. This is a priest back in Jerusalem and how, how the people were engaged in pedophilia and just these horrible things. So it was clear that people were breaking the covenant and it kept getting worse and worse. God though, does not have this invasion and deportation happen all at once. It happens over a period of 20 years. The first one is in 605 BC. Now, let's do a little history background here. 605 BC, one of the most important critical battles in all of ancient history happened. It's the Battle of Carchemish. It's in that battle that these upstart Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar was the son of the king and he was the general, is able to defeat the Egyptians at a place called Carchemish. That changes changes history because from this point on, Egyptians are no longer a superpower. They now are eclipsed into second-class status and Babylon becomes ascendant. Within that year, the, the general Nebuchadnezzar Decides after he beats the Egyptians. He goes all through the Middle East there. Anybody who was uh, favorable or tried to help the Egyptians, including Judah, he went in and chastised them. So in the case of Judah, he, he goes into Jerusalem, knocks on the door, breaks in, takes all kinds of gold and silver and sacred vessels from the temple, you know, just robs them blind. And he takes hostages. He takes the sons of nobility and the royalty, the king's family itself. He takes them as hostages into Babylon as a way of telling all these people groups, you you don't support Egypt, you you support us now. Daniel is one of those young men, and he tells us that in chapter 1, and some of the young men are, are because they're, they're good-looking, there's no blemish, there's no problems, they're smart, they are selected for special service in the king's you know, palace. And that's who Daniel is. The king, uh, the king is replaced in Judah at that time. A new king is placed by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, his father, dies within the year, and so he's now king, and he remains king for 57 years. And the new king that is installed by Nebuchadnezzar is expected to be a vassal and to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire. But by and by, he rebels. So Nebuchadnezzar, this is now 597. So this is, what, eight years later, the new king has rebelled. Nebuchadnezzar goes back to Jerusalem, knocks on the door. He takes the king, the king's mother, and he takes as hostages um, the important people in, in Judah. So he would have taken officers. He would have taken, he did take uh, people who were like uh, skilled, maybe a goldsmith, a silversmith, uh, people who could provide skills there in Babylon. And he basically left, um, you know, the people that nobody wanted. Of that second group of people that are seized is a guy named Ezekiel. When he gets to Babylon, he, he is called at that point to be prophet. And so, Ezekiel, very, very detailed a set of prophecies uh, during this time. Now, you think after these two deportations that the now new king would have got the idea that, you know, I need to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah got in trouble because he kept saying, don't go to Egypt, you must stay loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's imprisoned and all kinds of things happen to Jeremiah because uh, of what his warnings are. But they don't. And so they rebel now again. And this is the year 586. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Three strikes and you're out, boys. This time we're not taking hostages. We're, we're not going to steal your silver and your gold. We're going to destroy your nation. So he goes marching into the capital city of Jerusalem, breaks down the walls. They destroy and burn the temple. They kill most of the people and take a remnant back to Babylon. They leave practically nothing, okay? Only the homeless people are left. So we see God's really gracious hand. He's trying to discipline them. They continue to break the covenant and so that's the background of all of Daniel. Now let's talk about the narrative. Chapter one, which is about Daniel, is really not part of the narrative. It's sort of an introduction. Today, if you were had a, you got a book, all this stuff about Daniel would be in the a, in a preface or an introduction. The story really starts in chapter two, and it goes through chapter seven. It's in Aramaic. Daniel wants the Gentiles to read this, that shows God's sovereignty over the kings and kingdoms of the world. And then he picks up in 8, 8 through 12, and he's back in Hebrew. Curious thing about Daniel is he doesn't really get his first vision until he's about 70. And over about the next 17 years, he gets four visions. In addition to these four visions, there are two dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. The first dream of Nebuchadnezzar, we'll read about that in chapter 2, is a vision of time. What is going to happen to the kingdoms of the world from Nebuchadnezzar until the end of time? And that story is essentially what all the other five things are about. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we, we use some metaphors and some symbols and he sets out the general grand scheme of history between the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the end of time. We get to the second dream of Nebuchadnezzar and it's really about him and his humbling, but how he fits in at the end uh, of his time. We've got those two dreams. Then we come up in chapter 7 through 12 and we get these four visions. The vision in 7 is is really the same story as Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but there are more details. And in fact, each of the successive visions cover parts or all of that same period of time, but they just give greater detail. And so in, by and large, the last three visions uh, give very detailed information as it affects um, um, the people of Israel or the people of Judah, the Jews. Now, there are some things in there that we as evangelical Christians find interesting, like the 77s of weeks and some of that. I'm not going to get into that too much, but th- that, that's sort of the big overview of Daniel. Now, so, the narrative itself, well, before we get to the narrative, I, I do want to talk about Daniel, and I should have done this earlier. Why is chapter one there? Daniel is a young man, and because he's good looking and he's talented and he's smart, he's chosen with several others, and he is turned over to who? Well, some of your translations, which are politically correct, will say an official of the king. Well, the actual underlying Hebrew here is chief of the eunuchs, as in men who are castrated. A lot of controversy here, but really when you look at it, you can only come to one conclusion. In ancient times, and certainly in in, uh, oriental kingdoms, of which this would have been one, It was a very, very common practice. Um, And it, it continued in many civilizations right up until the last few hundred years. If you got selected as a slave, servant, whatever, to work in the palace, the king wanted to make sure that there wasn't any temptation for you. And so it was the common practice that slaves who went to work were castrated. A lot of people don't like that, but it's there. And let me show you. Daniel, for his entire 70 years that he is there, plus, he's, he's not married, he has no family, and he's always living in the palace. Even after the Persians invade and, and defeat uh, uh, the, the Babylonian Empire and take over the palace— Daniel's continued. He, he's he's still allowed to live there. Why? Because he's a eunuch. And now, people will say, "Well, that's not really fair." You know, except that's what Scripture says. In Second Kings chapter twenty, we read how King Hezekiah was showing off to the the Babylonians. This would have been before Nebuchadnezzar. And he was showing them all the wealth that he had in his palace and in his temple. And this is one of the reasons why when Nebuchadnezzar came, he seized a lot because they knew there was a lot of treasure there. God was upset. He sent the prophet to Hezekiah and said, why did you do that? That was poor, poor wisdom on your part. And then the prophet says, your descendants your own flesh and blood will be taken away and become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Friends, that's what scripture says. Now, I want us to think about what's going on here. Um, I don't know how many men, young men were taken. I'm going to say older teenagers. We know of only four, Daniel and his three friends who were given... Babylonian names, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And we'll talk about them in a minute or two. And they at Daniel's urging try to be faithful to God. Let's think that through. So Daniel is uh before he gets to Babylon, he's he's in he's in Jerusalem, you know, he's Probably his great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather was Hezekiah. So, you know, he's got a good life, Go to private school. He's probably on his iPad or iPhone talking to his girlfriend. And then his father or grandfather comes in and says, Daniel, come with me. Daniel's taken to the palace, and there are all these other young men there. And the king says to these young men, you see all those buses out there with Babylonian drivers? get on the bus. They get a long bus ride to Babylon. And they get there. Some of them are sorted out to work at the palace. And then something that neither Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, or Abednego could possibly have imagined. It is the worst day of their life. You know, a lot of people did not survive castration. But obviously, they did not have uh, pain-killing drugs. This this was a horrible experience. Obviously, you'd have post-traumatic stress after something like that. And they're not expecting that. Now, within a day or two, all you can do is be angry. And you're so filled with anger for what has happened to you. And then as days, couple weeks pass by and all those hormones go away, the anger goes and you fall into a deep depression because your life is over. You know, Daniel and his friends, let's say a couple weeks later, oh, a mistake is made, you can all go home. They would not have been able to go home. Under the law of Moses, a eunuch cannot inherit property. You are considered dead to your family. Your family is not going to take you back. Daniel is still alive when they are allowed to go back into the promised land. He doesn't because he can't. Well, maybe he could go and, you know, if he lived long enough, he could worship at the new temple. No, he can't. A eunuch was not allowed to participate in the worship in the temple. Everything in his life is taken away, never to be returned. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't go into a deep depression funk. He carries on. And the first test is, will you eat food that's kosher, honoring to God? or will you eat the stuff the Babylonians? Well, clearly all the other young men could care less about the law of Moses at that point because they weren't even covered by the law of Moses, really, after they became eunuchs. But Daniel says, we are going to honor and worship God, and he convinces three of his friends, and they are honored, and God does honor them. Why is that in the story? Well, we see as we go through the, the story, that oftentimes when the angel comes to speak to Daniel, he says things like, highly esteemed of God. God allowed this horrible, horrible, horrible thing to happen to Daniel and his friends. And they chose to continue to honor God. Nobody else did. And could you blame them? This is a story a lot like Job. God allows these things to happen to Job, and in the end, he never tells him why. He just says, yeah, Job, these things happened. Will you still honor, love, and worship me? That, that, that's the point of Job. Yeah, these things happened to you. Will you still love and honor and worship me? Now, this is a hard teaching for many of our younger people because you've grown up in a church that says, God is always on your side. God is always going to take care of you. He's always going to fix everything friends, God is going to allow things to happen in your life that are not going to be happy days. And God willing, none of that will happen to you like, like Daniel. But in this troub- world, we will have trouble. And Daniel chose to be honoring to God, and God blessed him every single time after that. And, and so this was quite a test, and that's why it's there. That is why God is using Daniel, because Daniel singularly, you know, steps out. By the way, there was some archaeology done uh, in, uh, in Babylon. At some point, uh, you know, they, they uncovered, I'm sure, late 1800s, early 1900s, the library of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's only been in the recent decades they've been able to translate a lot of this stuff. They've actually found a record, and I can't remember which of the three young men it is, I want to say it's Meshach could have been a Bendigo where he is appointed by Nebuchadnezzar same name to be the person in charge of the dancing girls and the prostitutes in the city of Babylon if he was a eunuch obviously he would not be distracted as he managed the prostitutes and the dancing girls so once again uh, This has happened, and Daniel rises above that. This, though, is a story for the Jews. The Gentiles don't care. But now we get to the actual narrative, and this is the the story story. Again, chapters 8 through 12 are an appendix. Uh, They're really one continuous um, explanation of, of Daniel's first vision, really. All right. Daniel writes in a chiasm. We've touched on chiasms before. We typically see chiasms used in poetry and in psalms. Psalms, of course, are poetry set to music. Once again, the main point is in the middle. So let's say you have a psalm or a poetry. You've got seven lines. The first line and the last line, in my example, first and seventh verse or line will say essentially the same thing and they'll point to the middle the second verse and the second to the last verse in my case verses two and six will also say parallel or similar things different from one and seven but two and six will be very similar and they too will point inward And then when we get to the third verse and the third from the last, which in my case would be three and five, they too are parallel and say similar things and again point to the middle. And that leaves us with one verse, the very central part. And in my example, that's verse four. And verse four would be the main point, the main point that the author wants to make. And the three Sets of parallel verses would all point towards that middle. We don't write like that. So Daniel is interesting. He uses the chiastic way as he's writing prose. We typically see it, though, in poetry. In this case, what's in Aramaic, the chiasm, chapter 2 and chapter 7 are visions of time. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He won't tell anybody what it is, but it's something that disturbs him greatly. He understands it's important. And the only one who can translate, of course, interpret it, is Daniel. And it's a vision of time. And Nebuchadnezzar sees a great statue. It's got a head of gold, a chest of silver, its uh, thighs are, are, are bronze, its legs are iron, and its toes are iron mixed with clay. At some point, a A hand, not a human hand, uh, carves a rock out of a mountain, throws it at the statue. The statue is busted up into little pieces, and it turns into chaff and is blown away in the wind. And that rock grows and grows and fills the entire world. And of course, Daniel explains the head of gold is uh, Babylon, and in particular, Nebuchadnezzar. And then he will be replaced by the Medes and Persian, and that's the silver. And they will be replaced by, actually, it's Alexander the Great and and his four great generals. And that's the Greeks, and that's the bronze. And then, of course, the Greek culture is finally uh, conquered by the Romans, and that represents the iron. And you say, you said that's to the end of time. Where are we? Well, we, we are the toes, the iron and the clay mixed together. Now, Daniel doesn't ex- spend a lot of time other than to say this rock, which is going to destroy all the uh, human civilizations, is going to grow and, and basically rule for the end of time. Now, we go to the parallel vision, and that's in chapter 7. So Daniel is, this is now actually after the time of the, uh, the Babylonians. This is the early part where the Medes and Persians have conquered the Babylonians. Daniel is about 70, and this is when he has his first vision. And he has a vision which uses different symbols, different metaphors, to say the same thing. But for him, it's these mythological beasts. He sees a lion with wings. And the wings are torn off, and the lion is stood on its feet, and it becomes a man and this is Nebuchadnezzar. And then there is a bear, and the description of the bear fits with the Medes and Persians. And then there's a leopard with four wings on its back, and that, of course, is uh, Alexander the Great, and the four wings are the four uh, generals that carve up his empire after he dies. And then finally, there is a mythological creature that is so horrifying that Daniel can't even describe him other than to say that it's frightening and that it basically chews everything up. Again, similar to what Nebuchadnezzar had, but this time we have more information. This time Daniel is told that this rock is actually the one like a son of man who comes with the clouds. And I'm going to go back and go through this in detail and is given all dominion. And this all dominion. And, and he's worshiped by all people. And it's an everlasting kingdom. That is clearly the Christ. So those are the two visions that point to the middle. Now, what we can tell, the God Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is sovereign over time. All time, human history, is going to unfold how God planned it. We'll take just a second. If you were on the outside looking in after 586 B.C., you would say, huh, this Yahweh God isn't very strong. I mean, he couldn't keep his people from being destroyed and carried into captivity by this Nebuchadnezzar guy. If you were a Jew on the outside or on the inside looking around, you'd say, well, God wasn't very strong. These two visions tell us, no, no, no. What happened to the Jews is exactly what God wanted to happen to them vis-a-vis the promises in Deuteronomy. You broke the covenant. You worshipped other gods. You got involved in pedophilia. You treated poor people terribly. You did not pay your workers a full wage. You broke the covenant over and over. And so things are unfolding exactly how I planned them. God is sovereign over human history, and the unfolding of time to the end of time. All right. Let's now go to the next two parallel lines. This is uh, chapter three. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar, after he's had that dream, builds this giant statue, and he's got it covered with you know gold and silver and that stuff to represent his dream, and he wants all people to worship it. Well, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego says, we're not going to do that. Nebuchadnezzar is furious, and they won't worship the idol. They, again, they choose to worship Yahweh God and him only and to keep the covenant the best they can. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar, there's these furnaces for all the smelting. They, they pump them up real hot. And he commands his people to throw the three uh, you know, Hebrew youth into the fire. We're told that the fire is so hot that the men throwing the three into the furnace are killed by the heat. And Nebuchadnezzar standing there watching. He looks in the door, and he's like, "Uh oh, there are not three burned-up bodies in the in this terrible fire." He sees not three but four people walking among the flames and are not being burnt. Okay, Meshach, Shadrach, and Bendigo come out. Then they come out, and they're not even singed and they don't smell smoky. Now what happens next is just classic how smart Nebuchadnezzar is. Nebuchadnezzar is like, oh, I have misjudged the God Yahweh. This God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego is so powerful that he can keep them from being killed in the furnace. He can frustrate what I want to do here. And Nebuchadnezzar then puts out a decree to go to his whole empire that says, nobody can say a bad word against the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Now, is he saying he believes Yahweh God and and only him? No, not at all. But he's a smart guy, and he realizes, okay, I'm in Babylon. I worship Marduk. We'll come back to Marduk. And these guys are from Jerusalem, and somehow their God's taken along, and he's going to protect them. I want to make sure that I don't get cross with Yahweh God, so I'm going to decree to everybody that they need to be nice to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and of course they get promotions. So this is a tale of deliverance, where God delivers his from a king. God could have delivered his people from Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, but he chose not to. The point is, he can. One more time, history is unfolding as he wrote it before the beginning of the world. Now, the parallel parallel story is now chapter 6. The Babylonians have come and gone. The Medes are in power, and for the life of me. Uh, Daniel's in his 80s. He's still living in a palace. And he is promoted to one of the top three civil administrators in the empire. And he's not even a Peter, a Mede or a Persian. Well, obviously, by this time, like I said, he's in his 80s. He's got a lot of credibility. The Mede and Persian emperor king, who is Cyrus, is not as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar was. And he is tricked Or if it's not Cyrus, it's the person who is running Babylon. There's some debate there. Um, So Cyrus is certainly the king of the Persians. We see, though, in Scripture the use of Darius. It's believed that Darius was the Mede title. So, in fact, it is Cyrus. Um, Cyrus' father uh, had the right... Was to the throne of the Persians. And we understand his mother uh, had the right to the, or was in the line to, to the king uh, uh, of the Medes. And so when the two of them got together, obviously Cyrus got the whole ball of wax. All right, any rate, these evil people who are administrators, who are Persians and Medes, uh, want to get Daniel. So they trick the king, the, the Persian king, in to they force his hand, and I won't go into the whole story. But his hand is forced, and he can't change what he has just decreed. And so, because Daniel prayed to God, and somebody saw him, several people, and he wasn't supposed to, he is thrown into the lion's den. Now, the Persians love lions. They were all a lot of motifs in their palaces and walls. And so they would keep lions in a a big den, you know, very deep. And uh, that's how they killed people. Uh, You got thrown into the lion's den and hungry lions, you know, they would gobble up the people that were thrown there. And so Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. You guys say he's in his 80s. And the Persian king realized he's been tricked. And so, but he can't, can't change anything, at least not yet. All night long, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't eat, he's just worried because he's got it figured out. This God of Daniel is not somebody you should take lightly. In the morning, he gets up, he goes to the lion's den, remove the, the stone or whatever, and he calls down, Daniel, are you there? And Daniel's down there petting the cats. And Daniel's, yeah, you know, God, God's angel just shut the mouths of these lions, so the Persian king is, oh, I was right. His God is really powerful. And so he pulls Dan, has Daniel pulled out of the lion's den. And he too sends out a decree to all of his kingdom, praising Daniel's God. The people who trick the king are thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And the lions devour them before their bodies hit the floor. So, we have now a, a parallel story of deliverance. G- God could protect his man, Daniel, who's 80 years old, sitting down among all these lions. He could very easily have protected the Jews in Jerusalem in 586, but he decreed that they should go through it. In fact, he decreed that before the beginning of the world. Gentiles need to get this god has planned all of human history before there was any god can deliver his people and it doesn't matter the kingdom or the empire or who the king is it doesn't matter what the situation god is more powerful than the most powerful person in these kingdoms now we go to the two the last two parallel stories these are stories of humbling of a king Nebuchadnezzar's Nebuchadnezzar is getting towards the end of his life. He has a dream. This is his second one, and it's disturbing to him. It's a dream of a tree. And he calls in Daniel. And again, Daniel's not a, not a young guy at this point, maybe in his late 60s or something. And he says, Daniel, I had a dream. What's it all about? Well, Daniel hears, and he's filled with fear because he knows it's about Nebuchadnezzar and it, it's not good. And Nebuchadnezzar, by this time, is getting to be an old man himself. probably in his 70s. And he, uh, he's like, uh, Daniel, you know, peace. Just tell me what the dream is, okay? I trust you. And Daniel explains that this tree is just a grand and glorious, incredible empire that Nebuchadnezzar has built. And it's going to be cut down. God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. And, um, and he's very specific about what's going to happen to him. Well, Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, Daniel. About a year goes by. Nebuchadnezzar is walking along the huge city walls friends, Babylon was one of the most beautiful technologically advanced cities in all of the ancient world, and maybe one of the most magnificent cities in all of human history. It, the description of it, it truly is magnificent. Um, the walls were massive. I mean, Nobody was ever going to break these walls down. Well, we have hypersonic missiles and all kinds of stuff today. But certainly in those days, there was no way you could break down the, the walls of that city. They were so massive. Um, Nebuchadnezzar stored up food for the people in the city in case they, there was ever a siege. It is said he had 20 years of food saved up in the city. Nebuchadnezzar was the first prepper, and Nebuchadnezzar had his engineers do something else. The Euphrates River ran under the city. They they built the city over the river, and so this river, this huge, fast-moving river, is really protecting the whole city. It goes in water conduits under the city, and so there is always a source of water. No one is ever going to take Babylon. And again, the the libraries, the gardens, they say it was magnificent. And the guys walk around, and he's going, Hey, oh, what a good boy have I been. Look at what I've done. Look, Look at what I've done. Well, that's pride. Because you know why he did it? Because Yahweh God enabled him to do it. He didn't do it on his own. God gave him the tools the resources the money and the personality to do it but he's taking pride and so immediately the dream that he had had the year before comes true God addles his mind he becomes um, like a brute animal he walks around on all fours his hair grows shaggy his his nails uh, they just keep they grow out he he's just He's like a cow, and they keep him in the royal gardens, and he's there for a few years, and he's eating grass. That's what they say. At some point, God clears his mind. His mind clears. And when he comes to his right mind, this guy is so magnificent, even though he's been walking around for a few years like a cow and eating grass, the fact that his mind is cleared, All of the nobles and all of his officials and family come, and he is restored to his former glory. Now, what he does next, it comes out of chapter 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. This is, uh, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High, El Elyon, the Most High God, who we know as Yahweh. I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. God is so sovereign of all creation, both heaven and earth. And none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all of his works are right and his ways are just And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Friends, this is different than the other proclamation. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I believe. Now, the last proclamation, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's saying, I don't know, but I'm going to take out insurance. I don't want anybody to malign this this God. Now he's saying, there is one God, and I believe in him. I put my faith in him. Most scholars believe, um, especially when taken into consideration with chapter 7, that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, through his 70 years experience there with um, uh, Daniel, that he's an Old Testament saint, that God had worked through the life of this man, had humbled him, And the man responded in faith, and we will one day see the Old Testament saints, and Nebuchadnezzar will be among them. So this is a humbling of a king that ends well. The king humbles himself, is humbled, he agrees, he confesses, and he praises God. He doesn't say, why did you do that to me for the last several years? He didn't do any of that. He praises God. Now let's go to the parallel story. And this is also a humbling of the king. This is in chapter five. Now we need to point out, there were no chapter numbers or verse numbers when Daniel wrote this. So the middle of the story is what we call chapter four, verses 34 through 37. But this is the heart of the chiasm, is this confession of faith. God is the sovereign of the kings and kingdoms of the world, and he can take the biggest warlord out there. He can humble him, and he can come to faith. Now we go to the negative example of humbling a king. Nebuchadnezzar lives for maybe three or four more years after this event, and he dies in uh, 562 B.C., which is just a few years after what we've just read. His son, a guy by the name of Evil Moradok, takes over, and within two years, he's assassinated. Nebuchadnezzar's older daughter had married uh, one of the generals, Neri Glassa, and he becomes king, and he lasts. he dies. His son takes over and is promptly assassinated. The second daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, had also married a general, and this guy's name was Nebuchadnezzar. And he actually managed to reign for a few years, from about 556 to about 539 BC. Nebuchadnezzar may be a general, and, and he, he may have been a good Babylonian, uh, but he, he had a mother issue. His mother was a high priestess of the moon god Sin. Now, if you remember when we talked about Genesis, the moon god Sin has been worshipped in Mesopotamia for nigh on 6,000 years. In fact, we have a major religion that still has a crescent moon as one of its symbols. Well, the moon god Sin was not honored in Babylon. Babylon honored the god Marduk. Nebuchadnezzar made every effort never to go to Babylon because it was believed by uh, the high priestess and the others involved in in that cult that Babylon was cursed. And Nebuchadnezzar did not want to stay in the city because it was cursed. And we say he's superstitious, but then again, you know, three of the Four people that preceded him were assassinated. So, you know, maybe maybe they were cursed. He stayed outside of the city and he ruled throughout the rest of the empire, but he left the capital city in charge of his son, a guy named Belshazzar. So Belshazzar, even though he, he was sort of like the Lord High Mayor of Babylon and they called him a king, he was actually under his father who, who really ruled the rest of the empire. Nibonidus is um, one of those curious people in history. He became fascinated with archaeology. And so here we are, 550 something BC, and he is busy digging up the ancient cities of Sumer, who, who had been there 3,000 years before him. So he was the f- first. Archaeologists in history, we say. The the Assyrians had been a big empire long before Babylon. And one of their vassal states was the Medes. The Medes changed loyalty and went over to the Babylonians. And that allowed the Babylonians to destroy the Assyrian Empire. As long as Nebuchadnezzar was there, things were fine. But after Nebuchadnezzar dies and we get these people who are slowly killed off, the relationship between the Babylonians and the Medes fails badly. They're not treated well. And so the Medes now turn again and they, they give loyalty to the Persians. And that enables Cyrus to now challenge the Babylonians. And clearly the Babylonians don't have their, their first string there anymore. They, they've, got this, the second, they've, they've got the JV team running the umpire so cyrus begins this campaign and he slowly takes city after city after city and uh there's two cities left one of them is Tema, where nebuchadnezzar is holed up and the city is destroyed and nebuchadnezzar is killed somehow nobody knows what they knew but the people in babylon the city know that they can hold out forever And I don't think that the son knew that the father had been killed yet, but but clearly they knew the the Persians and the Medes were out there. It would siege the city, Uh, not that they would be successful. So to show some arrogance, Belshazzar, the son, who's in charge of the city, throws this party. And like a lot of parties in those days, there's a lot of alcohol. There's a lot of immorality going on. Did I say there's a lot of alcohol? And he decides, this Belshazzar, that he's going to show how arrogant he is, that he's not afraid. And so he's not afraid of gods. And so he orders the sacred vessels, cups that had been used in the temple in Jerusalem, to be brought out of the temple of Marduk, where they had been kept, not used, but had been kept, brought into the palace. And so Belshazzar and his, you know, his party of all these people, they start drinking wine out of these sacred chalices that were built for temple worship in Jerusalem. Clearly, an affront to God. And so, it's late at night. Everybody probably can't pass uh, a DUI test, and um, all of a sudden, there's this ghostly hand. That comes out of nowhere and writes on the wall for everybody to see and it's like four words Meeny meeny tickle farson nobody knows what it means but then again seeing the disembodied ghostly hand has got them all scared so you got a lot of people who although they're probably drunk are also now in panic because something's going on they don't understand it someone somewhere gets a hold of the queen mother now is this Nebuchadnezzar's wife? Is it the daughter, the mother of, of Belshazzar? We don't know. So they get they get mom or grandma out of bed. You know, it's like, well, maybe she knows, and she goes, "Well, I know somebody who does know." And, and this this is Daniel. And Daniel was an important person in your father's kingdom. Now she says, "Father," but we understand it's, this is Belshazzar's grandfather. It's just a way to speak. Well, where is he? Well, he's still living here in the palace. So, you know, they get out a map, figure out where he is, get him out of bed, bring him in, and Belshazzar says, well, if you can interpret this for me, I will make you third highest in the kingdom. Obviously, he thinks his father, um, Nebuchadnezzar is still alive, who's number one. He's number two, and he will make uh, <laughs> Daniel number three. And Daniel laughs at him and says, Keep 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 all of your rewards, because what these words mean is you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and your kingdom will be given to the Medes and the Persians. And this very night your life will be required of you. You know, that is exactly what happened. There's a general, the Persians had a general, and his name was Gobraeus or or Ugabra hard to tell. He takes the city. It is believed that he was a Babylonian who defected to Cyrus. You know, as the leadership in Babylon is just being debauched, uh, this general appears to say, you know, I want to go with the guys with the white hats that are going to win, and so he defects. And he tells Cyrus how to win this battle. You have to get your engineers, and you go upstream from the Euphrates. I can show you a spot. And you architecture, you, you create, the, you know, get all your civil engineers, your CBs, all those guys out, Army Corps of Engineers. You get them out, and we're going to temporarily divert the Euphrates River. And they do that. That's quite a feat. And so what happens? In the middle of the night, they pull the plug. No more water suddenly the conduits are dry and the persians simply walk under the wall where the river used to to flow and they just simply walk in and take over and of course they they kill everybody do you see how this is a humbling of a king nebuchadnezzar was humbled but when his right mind came back he repented he confessed he honored god belshazzar no He's arrogant to God right up until the end, and so his life is taken. So that is the negative side. So that is your chiasm. The central part, of course, is being the, uh, the great statement by, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, now we're going to go back to chapter 7. So remember, we've had two dreams which deal with the end of time. And, and, and human history between Nebuchadnezzar to the end of time. Now I'm going to read part of uh, seven. There's all of the mythological creatures, there is, um, there's, this, there's this bad king that's going to arise and this bad king in a terrible war at the end of time, and um, and eventually they're going to be defeated. So we're going to pick this up. So Daniel is now going to give a greater detail of of the portion of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the rock. Only this time, the rock is the Son of Man. This is Daniel. As I looked, thrones were placed. and The Ancient of Days took his seat. This is God the Father. His clothing was white as snow and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and his wheels were burning fire. Uh, a stream of fire issued from him, before him, and thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the books were opened. I take it this is final judgment. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This is the bad king that arose. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned in the fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. I saw in the night vision, behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is what Jesus quotes about himself. Okay. In the Son of Man, he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under all heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom, the Son of Man, shall be a kingdom of an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Daniel is being told this, this is who we understand is the Messiah, Can you see that he is both God, because he's worshipped, and has an eternal kingdom? But he's also called one like a son of man. He is fully God, fully man, in one person. He will defeat all evil at the end of time. In Mark 14, and we have read this if you've listened to some of our podcasts before, Jesus is taken before the high priest, and he remains silent. They question him, But they can't seem to convict them because they can't get their evidence straight. And so Jesus actually has to give evidence to have himself convicted. And this is how it's going down. And look at the imagery he uses. But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Remember, they would not say Son of God because they didn't want to blaspheme the name of God. So Son of the Blessed, everybody understood. You are claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God, you you are God. And Jesus said, I am Yahweh. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. A clear reference back to uh, chapter 7 in Daniel. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? We have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. You know, we see this in Revelation. When John is speaking to the churches, he, he, he talks about Jesus. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Again, referring back to chapter 7. Now, we're going to spend some more time in, in Revelation and, and look at that presentation there of the gospel. Um, and yet Daniel has three more visions. The second vision, so these visions all happened during the time of the Persians. Daniel would have been in his early 70s and this would stretch out for about 17 years. The next vision he gets is a vision of a ram and a goat. We have different beasts now, again, different metaphors. The ram had two horns, which again is symbolic for describing the Medes and Persians. And the goats had wings and could fly across the face of the earth. And that describes Alexander the Great, who could move incredibly fast. And it's an interaction between these two empires. So we in Vision 2 of Daniel are getting more detail uh, All right, of the mythological creatures that Daniel saw in his his first vision, and in the, um, the silver and the bronze that Nebuchadnezzar saw on the great statue. As we look into history, the description of the goat and ram, I mean, it, it fits the Medes and Persians, and it fits uh, um, Alexander the Great and the, and the four generals that came out of him. Um, just a historical note here. Alexander the Great, incredible conqueror, he defeated the Persian Empire uh, at a time when it was falling, much like the Babylonian Empire was conquered when it was failing. Uh, Alexander the Great ran out of places to conquer and he set up his empire in Babylon. He's partying in Babylon, he gets sick, a lot of discussion about what actually happened there, and he dies. We say he's Greek. Uh, technically, he was Macedonian, which is in northern Greece today, but he grew up in the Greek culture. Uh, one of his teachers was Aristotle, uh, so he, he got all the best of the Greek culture, and he wanted to promote Greek culture through all of the known world, and his four generals, who were also Greek, Macedonian, um, after his death, they, they fought amongst themselves and eventually said, hey... We don't need to do this. This uh, empire is big enough. So they carved it up. And this, the Seleucids were the, this, the descendants of Seleucid, the one general who ended up in Damascus. And then the other general's name was Ptolemy and he went and conquered Egypt. Uh, So all of the Ptolemies, all the way to Cleopatra, she was a Greek, right? She wasn't Egyptian. She was Greek. She was one of the Ptolemies, the last of the Ptolemies. So they forced Greek culture all through the known world. And so he describes that. We get to the third vision, and um, this is the 77s. This is of great interest to evangelical Christians, and um, I'm not really here to talk about the 77s other than to say um, Daniel is told that there are 70 weeks of seven for the Jewish people. Now, depending on where we start the clock running, the calendar running, It looks like we get through 69 weeks of years, so 69 times 7. It it looks like we get to the end of the first 69 of the seven years at the crucifixion of Christ. And in fact, in the 77s, uh, it talks about that when the anointed is cut off. Well, obviously reference to Christ again. There appears to be a break We call it one of the gaps, and the clock has stopped. And so we as evangelical Christians are waiting for the rapture when the church is taken out, and the clock restarts. So the clock for the last 2,000 years has stopped, but we still have seven years to go. And these are the seven years of tribulation, so that's where that comes from. Again, he is explaining... More detail to what the first two visions or vision and dream provided. We finally get to the last vision. Talk about controversy. It appears to be speaking about the terrible things that happened uh, when the Seleucids had conquered. Uh, Israel and had taken it back from the Ptolemies. And that was a time of uh, great upheaval. And so we are talking eh, about 100 BC-ish. Um, and all this is going on amongst the Jewish people and, and uh, the temple is desecrated and all the things that go on. And it's great detail, but it's given to encourage the Jewish people that when they go through this, they can look at scripture and go, oh, Daniel told us it was coming, and we can see it coming. And so we know there's an end to this. We have to persevere to the end, and um, we'll get these people kicked out, and and we'll rededicate the temple. Daniel told us it was coming, and there's hope at the end. And then at some point, there is this turn. He, He seems to turn from that period of time to now looking way in the future, end times, times that are future to us. And quite a a lot of information there about end times, the Antichrist, the beast, and, and, and all of this. And we don't learn more about that until we get to Revelation. But he sets the scene, he puts all the pieces in place, which... Then John will give us more information about when we get to Revelation. When was Daniel written? Well, Daniel claims in the writing itself that he was the writer and he gives years. And so if it is Daniel, it would have been written uh, when he he was in the the, the great exile between 605 and, I don't know, uh, 538, 535 B.C., something like that. But the secular people, those that hate us, that don't believe in any of this stuff, say it couldn't be. It could not have been written because it has very specific events that are predicted. Again, if you have a study Bible, you can go through that last vision and they will give you names and years of everybody he talks about. So like the queen of the south, the king of the north, and they did this and that. And sure enough, historically, the Seleucid and, the, you know, the, the Ptolemy, and, and on and this year they did this thing, and, and it's right there in Daniel. And so those who are against the miraculous and say, there is no God, there is no prophecy, say, well, this is proof that somebody had to have written this eh, sometime just before the the time of Christ because there are too many details that are given in Daniel that only somebody later in time would know about because prophecy doesn't exist. Well, as I've said before, archeology span has a way of (laughs) messing up the doubters. 1947, uh, some Bedouins who uh, essentially were grave robbers uh, discovered uh, some clay jars with some scrolls inside and that led to more and more discoveries on the Dead Sea. These are the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were kept hidden by the Vatican for many, many years, and through a mistake of theirs, um, everything had been copied, and the copies were kept in libraries around the world, And unfortunately, they uh, picked the Huntington Library in California, which was subject to Freedom of Information Act. And (laughs) scholars were able to get copies, uh, photocopies of all the scrolls. And so the Vatican no longer could control how things would be translated and interpreted. And we saw so much. And that's all been in the last, I don't know, since late 60s, I believe, or 70s. There is a scroll of Daniel. And we can date it to about 150 200 BC with certainty. Whoops. Because that means we have absolutely archaeological proof that Daniel was written before the final events that we see in the last vision. Because The scroll was written long before they happened. It really is amazing, um, the accuracy and how time and science, if we actually are fair and real about the science, uh, we can prove the things in scripture. Daniel, I have to go back to chapter one. Because Daniel went through that very, very difficult thing and continued to praise God afterwards, and continued to always be faithful. God used him in an incredible way. We we get to the end of Daniel, and really to do all this justice, I, I'll have to do just kind of a separate end times kind of episode at some point. But we see Daniel at the end, and God directs an angel to write all these things um, in a scroll about end times, and. Daniel says, I don't understand. And he's told, no, you don't. Don't worry about it. Seal the scroll up. And you will sleep. And at the end of days, you will be raised. And you will receive your reward. Probably one of the clearest places in the Old Testament where there is life after death, where there is a final judgment. I mean, we see it clearly in Daniel. Um, Just as my teaser for Revelation. In Revelation chapters, we get into 4 and 5, there's the scene in heaven, and God's sitting on the throne, and a scroll is presented, and it's bound. And the question is asked, who in heaven and on earth can open the scroll? And the answer was, no one. And then an angel, excuse me, a, a lamb that looked like it had been killed comes forward. A metaphor for Christ. He is found worthy to open the scroll and out of this scroll come the trumpets the bowls and all all of the plagues that are going to be poured on the earth during the tribulation where did that scroll, scroll come from friends i believe it's the scroll at the end of daniel which he's told to seal up and one day it's going to be opened by one who is worthy And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. I commend Daniel to you. Uh, I, I think it's really worthy to study that chiasm. Notice the parallelisms. Notice how God is showing his sovereignty over the kings and kingdoms of the world, over history from before it was, you know, before the foundation of the world. And just how powerful our god is i want to thank you uh, for listening to me and um, please again this is andrew from colorado springs if you can uh if you can send an email um, our email is station at ktlfradio one word dot org station at ktlfradio.org send us a line tell us how we're doing us feedback so uh, as as we are up you know planning to put together uh, you know resources for the future all right let me close this in prayer gracious heavenly father i praise you and thank you for the faithfulness of daniel oh lord i scarce can imagine my Father, I pray that you would strengthen uh, th- those who are suffering and persecuted throughout the world, that you would give them the faith of Daniel to persevere through their bitter times. I thank you for your word that shows us that Christ is always there, and, and, and we see him coming. And, and you ordain this before the beginning of the world for our salvation. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.